Shalom, shalom. You're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 179. My name is Arl bin Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkino, our Father, King, Lord, we are so blessed to be able to be um, coming to a new uh, or another uh, cycle in the festivals and feast days and special holy dates that you've planned for us, that you've marked out on your calendar. Um, Shavuot is, at the time of this recording, it's still a week away, right around the corner. But by the time this YouTube video makes it to the internet, um, we will have uh, experienced our Pentecost, our Shavuot. And so thank you, Lord, for um, uh, being faithful to us and bringing us to this place, to inviting us into this special time with you, the uh, celebration and commemoration of not just the giving of the law and the Torah at Mount Sinai, but also the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the giving of the Ruach Kodesh, which forms for us in our lives um, very good lessons. We have the Word of God, which is that objective standard and uh, provides for us a blueprint for daily living. And now we have with that the power and the presence of your very Holy Spirit in our lives so that we can walk out your commandments and be pleasing to you and be able to turn from sin and live lives that are sanctified. And so thank you, Lord, that um, you are faithful, even in the midst of our unfaithfulness. Continue to uh, call us higher to a, a, a higher standard. Help us to continue to press in and um, expect great things in you because we have a, we serve a great God. And uh, be with us tonight, Lord. Uh, many in our lo uh, uh, local circles here have been sick, um, myself included. And so thank you for healing and for your hand of mercy and providence and continued protection for our families. And uh, just continue to strengthen us, Lord. We'll be careful to give you the praise and glory. B'Shem Yeshua. Amen. Thank you, everyone, for joining me week after week for these live internet studies. My name is Arl bin Lyman Hanavi, and this is a study on Matthew chapter 9, 14 through 17, uh, entitled Judaism v. Christianity, or the long title is Are Judaism and Christianity Incompatible with One Another? And we're having this entertaining discussion about the, um, the idea that Judaism has been replaced by Christianity. Uh, replacement theology, supersessionism. Um, we've looked at some different sources, um, different uh, Christian sources, um, and um, trying to ascertain uh, on a commentary kind of on this particular uh, passage that I'm going to read here that you can see on your screen right now. Um, was Yeshua really entertaining this idea that the old and the new were incompatible, that the old had its time and was on its way out and needed to be replaced by this new. And when we say old and new, you can kind of fill in the blank there. You can say old and new people groups. You can say old and new um, standards of living, or you can say old and new religion, or old and new standards, or, you know, whatever. Um, old and new covenants, uh, if, if that word fits. So let's read the um, passage that is the focal point, which is out of Matthew. You could read this as well in uh, Mark and Luke, but I think if I'm correct, if I remember, it's absent from John. All right, let's read the story. There are three main elements to the story that Yeshua tells. There's a fasting element, there's a garment and patch element, and then there's a wine and wineskins element. And most um, uh, commentators think that they all fit together, they're all it's kind of it's repetition, but they're all teaching the same principle. Some see 
differing points along the way, kind of building on it. So um, we can go either way with that. I'm not really that particular. But here's what Yeshua has to say. This is taken from Matthew, the Matthew version, ESV. Starting in verse 14, Yeshua says, or I mean the, the author writes, Then the disciples of John came to him, speaking of Yeshua, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15, Yeshua said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Verse 16, No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. And then verse 17, Neither is new wine put into old wine skins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wine skins and so both are preserved. End quote. All right, so that's the passage in question. And again, we can see right away that Yeshua is definitely trying to teach some principle of there's an incompatibility issue. So I can't deny that fact. Our question for us, the task for us as Bible students living 2,000 years removed from this story, is to try and figure out what Yeshua's application is. Who is he referring to, or whom, or what? What's the object? What's what's being replaced? What's the old? What's the new? Um, where's the incompatibility issue? So, what we've begun to do in my commentary that I have available on my website uh, to this particular passage is look through a few different Christian authors and their perspective. Right now, we're ready to continue our look at Pastor John MacArthur's perspective. And typical of most Christian pastors, they're going to take the perspective that the church has replaced Israel in God's scheme of things. And along with the replacement of Israel as a people group, um, you know, the chosenness aspect, when we say replacement of people groups, um, the law of Moses is also going to have to find its way off to the side, being replaced with the law of Christ or something along that factor. Or you've heard Christians say the Old Testament has been replaced by the New Testament. The old is out, the new is in. Or the old covenant is out and the new covenant, right? I don't know of many Christians who will, would admit that they're part of the old covenant. Most will say I'm a New, new Testament Christian or I'm a new covenant believer or something like that. So those are the terms that are usually um, kind of um, uh, introduced. Here's what um, we, we looked last week, uh, or two weeks ago, I'm sorry, we missed last week because of my personal illness. So let me back up just um, a few sentences into Pastor MacArthur's explanation of what he believes is an indictment against Judaism of the day. He believes that Yeshua is leveling this harsh rebuke against the Jewish leaders and their um, their bankrupt religion. And... Um, you know, if if you read Matthew chapter twenty three, where Yeshua himself um, just you know takes takes the, the scribes and the Pharisees to task, you know it's this famous "Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, uh, hypocrites!" Blah blah blah. You've learned, you you probably heard that sermon. You would get the impression that what um, Pastor MacArthur is is teaching his commentary here is just spot on. And I mentioned two weeks ago that there there is. A level of accuracy to his his indictment against Judaism. However, the question, and I'll just tell you this right up front so that you can have this perspective, is it necessary to throw out the baby with the bath water when we're when we talking about um, the corrupt uh, uh, leadership in Yeshua's day? Yes, the leaders were corrupt. Yes, the people uh, to, had, had come to 
uh, cloud the issue when it comes to um, what God's word really expects of them. You know, the tradition had blinded them. Um, the fences upon fences and and interpretation upon interpretation had uh, um, kind of pushed God's law off to the side in favor of their own personal perspectives, their own um, loopholes and things like that. Um, but is God's word, was God's word itself, the law of Moses and, and those standards that they represent, were those in a place where they too were so lacking that Yeshua had to say, let's hit the reset button, you know, to kind of use today's um, pop uh, culture references. Did we have to reboot the franchise, right? Let's go back and, and get all new actors and, and, and retell the story all over again, ditch all the original actors. Is that what's going on? All right, let's pick up our my commentary. This is Doctor. I'm sorry. This is Pastor Pipe. Uh, not Pastor Piper. We looked at his already. This is Pastor MacArthur's words. Speaking of Judaism, um, he says they. Speaking of the religious leaders, they were proud of their religiosity because Jesus preached humility. Uh, by contrast, they were into external ceremony, and Yeshua preached a transformed heart. They, the religious leaders, they held tightly to the old, and he offered the new. They love the approval of men, whereas by contrast, he, Yeshua, offered the approval of God. They had ritual, so we're talking about these um, contrasts between Yeshua's message and the message of the leaders of Yeshua's day. They had ritual, but he offered a relationship. And I conclude by saying sad but true indictment of the first century Judaisms. Now, even though I'm approving of some of the indictments, some of the um, aspects of what um, Pastor MacArthur is saying, I get the impression when I read through his entire sermon, and this is just a snapshot, so in all fairness, perhaps this is not where Pastor MacArthur was intending to go, but I've listened to enough of Pastor MacArthur's sermons to get the impression that I really think that he finds nothing very useful in Jew Judaism as religion, whereas um, perhaps maybe this is my biased view as a religious Jew, as a Messianic Jew, but I find that all of Judaism doesn't need to be thrown out in order to um, uh, uh, redeem what God gave us, the aspect of keeping the Torah um, as Judaism has preserved those aspects. It is true that I don't just agree with everything that Judaism teaches, right? You guys obviously know that that's my viewpoint. All right, so let me read. Let's keep reading uh, Pastor um, MacArthur's notes. I'm going to try and somewhat accelerate uh, since we lost a week. Let's see if I can pick up um, some of the notes by just talking less and reading more, okay? You ready? Here we go. This is Pastor MacArthur. And then to make clear to them, speaking of the Jewish leaders, to clear to them how different these two were, we come to the clarifying analogies of verse 21, uh, 22, and we'll add a third one in. And in his imitable way, he uses analogies that they would readily understand that need virtually no explanation. I agree with that, by the way. Yeshua often used just real-life, everyday principles, parables, uh you know, facts that people could catch on with because it was just everyday living and everyday anecdotes. He and then Pastor MacArthur um, basically uh, retells the story or requotes it, paraphrases it. He says, No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, otherwise, the patch pulls away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear results. 
He continues, anybody who washes anything at any time that is made out of a natural fabric, whether it's linen or cotton or whether it's wool or uh, some other form of animal hair. And he's just, again, he's just explaining the story that Yeshua uh, explained to us. Um, If it's woven together, they can understand that things shrink. No synthetic products in the ancient world, right? Things shrink. So today... Um, you know, if you wash something, if it's got enough spandex or, uh, uh, or other man-made materials in there, um, lycra or whatever, then it's not going to shrink. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to be bouncy. It's going to be stretchy, right? Um, but in the ancient world, we didn't have all that. So, um, if you, if you wash the clothing, then it shrunk up. So he continues, he says, so everybody would know that if you take a piece of unshrunk cloth, and by the way, um, he says that Matthew describes this and Luke describes it well. Uh, their words are a little bit different. Um, and that's the genius he mentions of the New Testament. Uh, that if a committee had put it together, then we would find that they would have made it all match. But any teacher, any Bible student also knows that when you're teaching something like this and you're, um, you're using details and you're drawing out an analogy then what you do is you repeat yourself and you nuance it and you say it two or three ways until the students or whoever you're speaking to, they get the point. And then each of the writers in the Bible does this as well. They pick up on the unique elements of it together. And then in doing so, uh, MacArthur mentions that you get the whole thing. And yeah, that's true. He continues, he says, but it's essentially the same, right? It's exactly the same. You take a peach piece of unshrunk cloth and you cut it into a patch. And you don't do that to sew it into a new garment. Otherwise, he says, the patch, when it's washed or wet, it becomes dried out and it pulls away from it, right? Uh, the new part from the old part. And then a worse tear results, right? Worse than when you began. He continues, this is a foolish mix. So you can't mix new patch unshrunk cloth with an old piece of cloth. Again, let me just pause and interject. MacArthur is simply reminding us of the common sense factor of Yeshua's teaching here. And this must have been necessary in order for Yeshua's application to be common sense as well. So if you think about it, the fact that Yeshua used something that was not very technical, something that any common person, perhaps even children could even uh, wrap their mind around then then with equal precision you would think that the application that modern pastors give this part of the parable or anecdote about the the, the cloth part if the application repl- uh, applies to judaism is out christianity is in old testament is out new testament is in law of moses is out law of christ is in Israel's out, the Christian, the church is in, etc. If that application was so easy to understand, then why did the, and you can look up history to, to, to fact check me on this, why did so many first century Jews and Gentiles still continue to practice a religion that would be identified outwardly as Judaism, a sect of Judaism, a form of Jewish religion? In fact, <laughs> If, if it was so apparent and easy to understand and apply that Yeshua is trying to get them to understand that, hey, it's a no-brainer, the old is out, the new is in, then why didn't he just say it that way? Um, so I'm, I'm, those are some of the 
some, not all, some of the reasons why I'm leery of this particular um, application about uh, the old is out and the new is in. I, I think there was a church, I'm sorry, there was a split eventually between um, Judaism and Christianity, Gentile forms of following after God and Jesus and Jewish forms of following after God and Jesus and eventually following after God, right? The church and the synagogue split, if you want to call it that. Um, yes, that's true. But that wouldn't come till really centuries later. The, the, the split wouldn't really be formalized. Yes, the um, seeds were being sown, and Judaism was one of the first ones to begin to pull away from the newly formed religion that we might call Christianity. So that's true as well. Didn't help that the temple would later on get destroyed in 70 AD, um, further uh, kind of fueling this animosity and split between uh, opinions on the Jewish side of the house and opinions on the on the Gentile Christian side of the house. So, uh, but we can continue to talk about those a little bit later. Let's go on with uh, Pastor MacArthur's notes. He goes goes on to say, apostate Judaism's rituals and ceremonies are a worn out garment, and you cannot patch the holes in it with a piece of the gospel. It's not compatible. Jesus didn't come with a message to patch up the old system. Instead, he came with a message to replace it all together. And again, if you're not kind of reading between the lines here, essentially what Pastor MacArthur is saying is that Yeshua, Jesus, came to take the teachings of Moses and essentially explain that it's worn out, it's damaged, it's run its course, it's it's not compatible with the new way of um, approaching my father that I'm teaching. And therefore, you got your ritual has to give way to relationship. Almost as if you can't have it both ways. I, I, I sometimes wonder out loud if, if Pastor MacArthur envisions a, a, a viable Messianic Judaism where you have a Jew who believes in God and loves God with all his heart and yet at the same time espouses the genuine faith in Jesus and practices the religion that God gave to his people Israel, right, handed down through Moses. I'm not talking about a Messianic Jew who simply repackages rabbinic Judaism. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a Messianic Jew who's a believer in Jesus, who turns his heart and soul and spirit into the genuine law of God as given by Moshe and upheld by Yeshua, and modeled by the Messiah, and therefore lives his life in accordance with um, the biblical truths, not necessarily the rabbinic perspective. So, um, again, if the indictment, and I, I give Pastor MacArthur this, um, I give him this 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 uh, allowance because I, I again I've never had a dialogue with Pastor MacArthur, so I can't say factually. 100% that I know exactly what he's trying to get at here in his sermon. But I get the impression that really his indictment is more accurate if it's leveled against rabbinic Judaism, the form of Judaism that openly, outwardly, historically, systematically, categorically rejects Jesus and anything that has to do with Christianity and things like that. Okay, that would be an accurate um, uh, accusation if he's talking about the bankruptcy and things like that. But, um, unfortunately, it's very difficult for most Christians to separate biblical Judaism from rabbinic Judaism. They don't, many Christians aren't even aware that there's a difference between those two ty- these two types of religions. So it's necessary for us today, I think, to um, 
to uh, identify these two separate types of religion that, that are both built foundationally upon the law of Moses. However, rabbinic Judaism diverges from um, the law of Moses when it introduces all of its oral traditions, its oral Torah, its Talmud, um, its sayings of the rabbis, and, and all of these midrash uh, explanations and things like that. That's halakha veers off in a different direction than the law of Moses had intended the people to go. And thus, um, there is a difference between the two religions. Let's continue. G uh, these are my own uh, brackets here. Jesus came to replace Judaism with Christianity. It's my own thoughts. Does that line up with the prophecies in the Tanakh about the coming Messiah's mission to unbelieving Israel and to the Gentiles? Right? This is my question to anyone who would say Jesus' message is incompatible with Judaism of the first century. It was incompatible. And therefore, it needed to be uh, Judaism needed to be, be thrown out, and Christianity needed to take its place. I have to stop and again challenge him. Really, really, is that what Jesus came to bring? Did he come to bring a new religion? Did Paul likewise start a new religion, or is it more factually accurate and better, truer uh, to the text and to prophecy to say that Jesus came to? turn the hearts of those who had grown cold back to the Father, to take those people who had gone astray and followed after bad teaching, not bad um, laws of Moses, but bad interpretations of the law of Moses, bad um, uh, traditions built up around the law of Moses, it's, you know, bad halakha, um, you know, corrupt leadership, that is where the error was, and that is where Yeshua applied his heaviest rebuke and attacks is to to dislodge um, the the callus that built up around the, the true law of Moses for the purpose not of bringing a new religion known as Christianity, but for the purpose instead of returning the people back to the pure truth of God's word, of his father's word, to reveal the truth of the law of Moses to the people afresh, to give them what God his father had given um, Moses 1,500 years prior, the pure word of God, the truth of God's word, before it had been perverted and corrupted into this form of proto-rabbinic uh, Judaism um, you know, that was present in the first century. I go on to um, challenge in my own notes here. If only Pastor MacArthur could understand how theologically improper his statement sounds about Jesus coming to replace. If you read through your Bible, through the Tanakh, through the parts where it's the prophecy, the prophecies given to the people of old, there are not promises from God saying to the people of old, Listen, Israel, and I'm paraphrasing. One day I'm going to send my very son into your midst, and he's going to uproot everything that Moses laid down. He's going to wipe all that out, and he's going to pave the way for a new religion. He's going to establish a new way of approaching me, and therefore you guys just need to get ready for that, okay? This is the promise that you need to look forward to as a replacement of the old law with a new law. And indeed, you as a people group are going to be set aside in favor of a new people group that I'm going to be taking to my own covenantally. And so um, just get ready for it.
Is that what the prophets were preaching to Israel of old? Would anyone have listened to that message? Right? Welcomed it? You know, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will establish a new people group, says the Lord, right? Not not with the old people group. You guys are out, but a new people group. So get ready. A new law, not the old law, but a new law, not the old covenant, but a new covenant. Would anyone have really welcomed that? Wow, can't wait for that day to come when we're out and new people are grouping. Okay, so I'm kind of putting it in terms so that you can kind of picture um, how would the people interacted with Yeshua's message if he hit the scene saying, you know, hero Israel, listen up. I'm, I'm the new way. I'm the new truth. I'm the new life. Everything you heard up to this point is really, well, it's out. It's, uh, it ran its course. It's, um, it's, it's used up its usefulness, right? Lost its flavor. It's, it's, it needs to be rebuted. <laughs> so that's why I say it's, it's theologically improper. And I'm sure that Pastor MacArthur would not have made this statement to his congregation had he really um, kind of considered the um, theological inaccuracies of, of how this sounds. Particularly, how was, how do, how, not only would the, how would this sound to first century Jews then, but uh, how do you think it sounds to Jewish people today, religious Jews, or even secular Jews? Hey, you know, you stop a Jew on the street, you're a Christian with your Bible, you stop a Jew on the street and you say, can I witness to you, can I talk to you about Jesus? And just for humor's sake, let's just say they say, yes, okay, yeah, sure, I give you five or ten minutes to tell me about Jesus. And the first few things that come out of your mouth is, first of all, as a Jewish people, you guys are out, uh, Christianity's in. Uh, the Judaism's out, Christianity's in, uh, Israel's out, the church is in. And along with that, um, your Tanakh, your Old Testament Bible, that's out, the New Testament Bible, that's in. And along with that, the Law of Moses, let's pitch that and let's replace it and establish the, with it with the Law of Christ. Do you think they would continue to entertain any conversation with you at all? Is that even appealing to any Jew on any level, right? Um, so let's just stop and think about that. Um, these words that we sometimes entertain without a bat of an eye. We don't even think about it. Well, of course, yeah, the New Testament. You know, Jesus brought the new. I'm a New Testament Christian, not an Old Testament. Just stop and think about the words we're saying for a second, all right? Is it necessary to throw the baby out with the bath water? Um, are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Let's read another um, paragraph. Let's see how far we can get. I think we can finish this paragraph from um, from uh, Pastor uh, MacArthur and uh, begin to draw this part of our study to a close. He goes on to say, these are in MacArthur's words, there's a lot of talk these days about conferences between Jews and Christians, and certainly we want to love them, and love them from the depths of of our heart. Notice he's 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 not really backpedaling, but he is um, he is in all fairness saying that there is an evangelic evangelistic need to reach out to unsaved Jewish people. He continues, we want to bring them to the knowledge of the truth, but whenever there is a conference between Christians and Jews, these are his words. I think the Christians are obligated to tell the Jews that their religion cannot save them. Now, again, at face value, if you're just talking about salvation based on uh, doing a list of do's and don'ts, well, then this is true. That simplistic straw man perspective or um, caricature of Judaism is, in fact, sad um, you know, the, the, the ages old Christian notion or idea perspective that 
um, Jews are keeping the law so that they can be saved, that they believe in a simplistic ladder to heaven, a legalistic perspective where, uh, whereby uh, they think if they just keep the law of Moses um, perfectly 100% of the time or something like that, then God will let them into heaven or something. Um, it is true that that perspective is, is, is misguided and you can't work your way into heaven. There's no legalistic perspective that God is going to find acceptable. So if that is the caricature you're drawing, then, um, yeah, let's, let's destroy that character. Let's, let's, let's work from that and apply the, uh, fix where needed. Okay. That could be true. He goes and say, that's what we ought to say at the conference, right? Your religion can't save you. The Messiah has come, and by his death and resurrection, he offers forgiveness and salvation if they will abandon their hope in their own works and in their own traditions and leave that religion behind. Okay, stop. Stop. Here's again where I take a lot of issue with what uh, Pastor MacArthur is, is applying here. He's equating the misunderstanding in Judaism of Yeshua's day as well as rabbinic Judaism today. He's equating the misunderstanding of God and God's laws, and he's conflating that with the idea of Judaism as a whole so that um, it's necessary to uh, um, uproot the whole system altogether and throw it all out and start fresh, right? reboot it. Uh, and, and bring in Christianity, as if to say that the lifestyle and um, standards that God is expecting uh, of his people now that Jesus has hit the scene is radically different than what what God gave Moses in the, in the, in, uh, when he gave the, the laws at Sinai. And this is where I think the disconnect takes place between um, Christians such as Pastor MacArthur and those who um, follow after teachings like his, and I'll close with this tonight. Um, the law of Moses, as given by God, is a pure standard. It's a righteous standard, and it is the standard that God expected his people to uphold. Therefore, by the power of the Holy Spirit, it is a lifestyle that is achievable. It is a standard that is expected and can actually be implemented by God's people. The key being, if your heart is pure before God by the power of the Holy Spirit and allowing your eyes to be opened by faith, if the ingredient of faith is active in your life when you encounter the law of Moses, then you are going to accept the Messiah found therein in the pages of the law of Moses, right in the, in the pages of the Torah, and you're going to walk down the path that God intends for you to walk down. It then becomes um, obvious that Yeshua doesn't need to teach a different standard of righteousness. He doesn't need to explain to you that your religion needs to be left behind if, in fact, the religion that you're following is the religion that God has already dictated. The, the, uh, as I'm closing with this, the way that Pastor MacArthur's spinning it, though, it's as if Jesus is contradicting the standards that God his Father laid down. Are you seeing that? So, um, unless, and again, I, I concede with this, if Pastor MacArthur simply leveling his accusation against rabbinic Judaism as a religion, what he would call rabbinic Judaism in opposition to biblical Judaism, I haven't seen any distinction in his writings that indicate that that's what he's referring to. He seems to kind of conflate 
what I mean by conflate is kind of mixed together without any noticeable distinction. Um, he's really conflating the idea of biblical Judaism and rabbinic Judaism. He's mixing the two together as if they're just one religion. I myself am making a distinction between the two. And so if that's the case, if he is making a distinction, then yes, rabbinic Judaism uh, was quite corrupt by Yeshua's day, and Yeshua had to rip that um, program down and dismantle it and to help him to return to the pure version of Judaism that his father had uh, uh, described in the pages of the Word. Um, let me conclude uh, Pastor MacArthur's words here. Um, he states by saying, No mixture of the gospel or any other religion is possible. It is absolutely unique. Speaking of Christianity, it is grace and grace alone. End. And so, um, what do you think? Those of you watching this YouTube video, listening to my iTunes podcast, what do you think? Do you think that Christi Judaism and Christianity are incompatible with Leonard? Do you think that... Um, Jesus came to start a new religion, and Paul picked up the ball and ran with it. Do you think that um, the law of Moses is out and that the law of Christ is in? Do you think Christians are no longer under the law of Moses? Do you think that Jewish people who come to faith in Jesus need to abandon their religion known as Judaism and embrace this religion known as Christianity? Tell me what you think. Let me know in the comments below. Um, I'd love to interact with you, but that'll do it now for this look at Judaism v. Christianity. These are the live internet studies brought to you week after week. My name is Arobin Lyman Hanavi. I'm a Torah teacher at Congregation The Harvest, Kehilatunwa in Thornton, Colorado. You can find us online at grafted.com. We'd have, love to have you join us in person for our services, our weekly Sabbath services, or if you're not quite comfortable getting out and about just yet, be sure to uh, catch our online resource at our YouTube channel where we upload uh, sermons week after week and you can just enjoy it safety from the um, safety of your computer, from our computer to your computer. These live internet studies are basically an extension of my own uh, congregational uh, experience as I've been able to develop my own Torah teaching resources uh, over the years, and one of those primary resources is my own website. You can find me online at tetzetorah.com, that's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com, and notice the uh, cluster of links of topics right on the homepage there. It's not the exhaustive list, but um, I invite you to just click your way around and see what you like. Um, if you have any questions or comments, my email is located at the bottom of each of the commentaries that I do put together. Speaking of resources, I also have my own um, YouTube channel. You can find me online at youtube.com forward slash C forward slash Tate Torah Ministries, all one word there. Uh, update the channel daily as often as I can. And if you do hit my website or my uh, YouTube channel, uh, be sure to do take one of the actions that you see dancing around on the screen right now. Uh, subscribe, hit the bell for notifications, give a thumbs up for the videos that you like, leave me comments and questions, and share the content with all of your uh, friends and family in your social media circles. Live Internet Studies is brought to you week after week. Let me just give you some of the uh, brief details. This is episode number 179 for May the 28th, 2022. That's the USA date. We meet each Saturday afternoon from 5 p.m. to approximately 6 p.m. Central Daylight 
time. We just finished our 30-minute segment in examination of Matthew 9, 14 through 17. Are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? Part 11. We're now ready to turn to segment 2, which is 30 minutes long, exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. We're in paper 3. Who or what is the Holy Spirit? Part 111. And then we've got a featured YouTube video that we'll watch tonight as well. Hope you can stick around for that. It's from my short question, short answer live series entitled, Do Christians Have to Obey the Old Testament Law? Join us week after week via Skype. If you click the blue Skype banner on my screen right now during the live sessions, it'll launch Skype on your browser and you'll be able to join us for the session right then and there. So you need to get access to Skype one way or the other. And at least do this one last thing for me. Take some time to prayerfully consider helping support me during this time, keeping me afloat, this difficult um, sort of um, kind of famine that I'm in of resources where I don't have a job, a regular job, uh, and I'm just relying on um, gifts and contributions from uh, people like you to help keep me going uh, week after week, month after month. I know it's, of course, God's provision working through you, but uh, consider uh, prayerfully donating to my ministry, and the funds will go not just to keep my ministry going, but at this point in time to keep me in a place where I can at least bring the ministry um, resources to you because I have no personal resources to help me out. So hit the little yellow donate button and that will help you to give securely. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity and pick up where we left off a few weeks back. We're talking about the Holy Spirit, which is appropriate given the fact that we're in the season of counting the Omer, which is the connecting point from Passover to Pentecost. In case you didn't know it, God intended for us to understand that Passover is connected and tied to Pentecost. And this is done via the counting the days that um, lie between the season of Passover and the giving of um, the law and the giving of the Spirit at Pentecost or Shavuot. And so it's 49 days, and then when we reach the 50th day, we have the celebration of Shavuot. And we're right around the corner. We're, we're in the final stretch, right? We've got a, about a week left. At the time of this recording, we've got about a week left until Pentecost or Shavuot. And um, just letting you know in advance, we're not going to have a, a, a Bible study that uh, next weekend, but I encourage you to uh, plug into a local congregation if you've got one that's teaching uh, the truths of Pentecost, many Christian churches are still studying Pentecost, which is great. After all, it is supposedly the birthday of the church, right? Um, even though I don't hold to that truth. But there's a lot of relevancy to studying the festival of Pentecost because not only is it the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and we're, and we're studying the Holy Spirit in these studies, but from my perspective as a Messianic Jew, it is the commemoration of the giving of the Torah at Sinai according to the, the, the uh, timetable and the reckoning uh, by Rabbinic Judaism, which I think is accurate here, um, the giving of the law at Sinai. So we have the giving of the words of God along with the giving of the Spirit of God, and that those two make a very nice pair. So let's talk about this Holy Spirit. Um, we've been looking at um, uh, this... Um, idea of Unitarian perspectives on the Holy Spirit. It's no secret that Unitarians do not embrace a Trinitarian God, a tripersonal God, one being who expresses himself and uh, relates to us in three persons. Unitarians embrace a single God, a monotheistic God, 
however, without the three persons aspect. And so when it comes to the spirit, most Unitarians are going to embrace a Holy Spirit model that is similar to a rabbinic Jewish model, which is either the spirit of God is very God himself, or the spirit of God is an emanation or a power or a, a gift from God, something that can be um, imparted to humans, but but in fact, it's just one God. There's no second or third person uh, that we need to contend with. So these are my own thoughts. Uh, we just got through quoting um, some, I think it was Unitarian, uh, biblicalunitarian.org or something like that. So um, let's see. Let's continue with my own thoughts here. So in direct response and challenge, these are my own words, to the Unitarian denial of Trinitarian concepts vis-a-vis, that is, as it pertains to the Holy Spirit, standard Orthodox with a small o Trinitarian Christian literature affirms the notion that the one true God does in fact subsist in three persons and that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. So there's our challenge. And I might add to that, uh, even though I don't state it right here, does the Bible support that view? What we're going to find, let me interject, when we're studying the Trinitarian concepts and the models and all of the explanations for how we understand God, most of us are uh, biblical Unitarians and biblical Trinitarians. Most of us are going to agree that um, God is the fountain point, the fountainhead, the focal point, the kind of the the source of God our understanding of God so that the Father is the um, one who sends Yeshua or the Father, whether you believe that Jesus is is very God or just a, a God-man, it doesn't matter. God the Father is still the one who is in control. In that in that same model, Yeshua plays that secondary role, that, that um, subservient role, um, submissive role to the Father. No matter if you're a Unitarian or a Trinitarian, Yeshua still plays that role where he submits to the Father, his will, will yields to the Father. And in doing so, we end up with uh, models that allow for um, uh, Yeshua to have preeminence as God's Messiah, right? The Messiah chosen by God. But at the same time, he doesn't have to be the Messiah who is equal to God in, um, in power and majesty and very deity, right? That's the Unitarian perspective. It's also uh, some forms of um, other Christian, like I talk about Christadelphians, Iglesia Ni Cristo, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Oneness Pentecostals, and things like that. But then when we get to the Holy Spirit, something actually unique happens. It's very somewhat easy to explain who God is, right? He's that one source, that all-powerful being who sends Jesus into the world. It's also somewhat easy to explain how... Um, Jesus is different from God because Jesus has a nature that's like our own. He's he's truly man. And so you read through the Bible, the, the you know, the gospels and Jesus exhibits all of the same qualities that humans do because he's truly human. But when it comes to the Holy Spirit, it becomes difficult. It's quite it's almost the opposite of of Jesus. Instead of of making it the task of explaining how much that Jesus is like God, when it comes to Trinity, right, um, it becomes necessary to try to explain in the Holy Spirit how much he's different from God. Indeed, as we're going to learn, 
most Unitarian models and rabbinic versions of the Holy Spirit simply conflate the Holy Spirit with God. Therefore, in their mind, there's only one Spirit. God is a Spirit, and the Holy Spirit is a Spirit, and thus it's the one Spirit. And I know actually in the mystery of the Trinity, that's true, that there is one God, one Spirit, and yet we're talking about the mystery of the Trinity. So it becomes the task of us Trinitarians to explain how the Holy Spirit is different than God, whereas with Yeshua, we, we have to explain how he's similar to God, right? Okay, so let's follow along. I say in my commentary, as we've learned in part one of this Shema study, one of the preferred methods of explaining this perceived logical inconsistency is to appeal to the mysterious nature of a complex singular God with separate components known as persons, right? Even though this word persons doesn't show up in the Bible, many opponents of Trinity are fond of letting us know that the word Trinity doesn't show up in the Bible, etc., etc., one particular author, I don't know how to pronounce his name correctly, but he writes for this particular theological study uh, that is just abbreviated HTS. He carefully notes how the early Christian church confessed these Trinitarian truths in creeds and confessions, even if they didn't fully articulate their attempts at, quote, unveiling divine truth in a rationalistic manner, end quote. So they didn't quite know how to explain the things that they were affirming all the time. They came up with formulas that simply helped uh, your average layman to memorize and to repeat for his opponents and indeed help him to affirm in his own prayers. And, um, you know, back in, in the early days, it isn't treated so much this way now, but back in early Christianity, reciting the creeds was actually a form of worship itself um it it was considered a form an act of worship to to repeat the creeds and to uh, recite them and to engage in the liturgy it was more it, it's still retained this way in many and most forms of catholic christianity and lutheran forms of christianity obviously orthodox forms greek orthodox and and those types of um christian uh denominations place a higher emphasis on liturgy than maybe, say, Protestant forms, evangelical forms, things like that. But let's continue to look at this. Um, there's a uh, quote here uh, uh, to kind of uh, uh, explain what I mean about the importance of creeds and, and explaining uh, using creedal formulas when your mind can't always uh, comprehend what's going on. Uh, the quote is, True dogmatic reflection is aimed at expressing the mystery of God in the realm of human thinking, but without trying to unveil divine truth in a rationalistic manner. The dogma of the Trinity, and with it the dogma of the Holy Spirit, is an interpretation of who God is expressed in rational words. It is not, however, a case of logical reasoning, but of confession. So again, this particular quote which I don't need to really click on the link to see who, who uh, referenced it. But the, the quote is simply trying to remind us that at some point in time, we may not fully understand how God can be understood. We can't understand how God can be 
um, related to. Uh, our minds are limited. We have not only information limitation in the Bible, right? We don't have all the words to fill in the blanks for what we would prefer to use to articulate our understanding of God. But at the same time, we have our own limitation at a human level. So even if God gave us all of the words that were necessary, even if any did in fact give us all the words that are necessary, so don't get me wrong. But what I'm saying is, let's suppose God entertained our, our intellectual um itch and gave us even more words than we asked for. He said, let me just explain to you technically what I am made up of. Well, then even still, who was to say that we would have understood it, right? If God gave us um, a technical manual instead of the word of God, if it was like ultra super technical, like a, like a, um, like a mechanics manual on, on, on a piece of machinery or something, right? With all of the, of the diagrams and all of the, um, specifications and, and things like that with, with, you know, with every single, um, a measurement laid out before us, right? If that's how God described himself, What's to say that we would still not be having this conversation where we're just saying, well, we well, we just can't understand this, right? God is complex. That's the point. And so what does liturgy do? What does what do the creeds do? They step in and say, okay, God, you are mysterious. We can't fully understand you, but nevertheless, we can affirm who you are and your um, place in our lives by reciting these formulas, by memorizing them, by re, um, speaking them with our mouths. And, um, uh, and that becomes a form of worship, a form of devotion and adoration, uh, to you. And indeed that's what the early, um, uh, uh, early church fathers did with the, many of the confessions. They use those as a form of, um, devotion and worship to God. I go on to say, speaking specifically of some of the earliest recorded baptismal confessions as they have been preserved in various extra biblical Christian texts from the church in Rome. Um, he comments, and I suppose the he, let me see, who am, who am I referring to when I say, uh, let's see, this is a quote. Um, I'm guessing, I'm not sure why I said he there. I apologize. Uh, who who the he is. Um, it's probably, uh, probably, is it Iranius? No. It may be one of the church fathers. I apologize, Justin Martyr. It might be. Let's just read the quote and make that the relevant part. I apologize for uh, being a little bit ambiguous as who the he this is. Um, the quote reads this way, quote, As a matter of fact, there is no evidence of an elaborated Trinitarian theology, the likes of which are to be found, for instance, with the church fathers of the fourth century. It cannot be denied, however, that these early testimonies also see the Spirit as a divine person, continuing, who is closely associated with the Father and the Son, and not simply as a gift or power. Already at the end of the first century, the divine status of the Spirit is affirmed by Clement of Rome in his letter to Corinth. Justin Martyr, in his apology, says that, and let's just read this quote from Justin Martyr, or this um, statement, he says that the Christians worship and adore the prophetic spirit, right? And then he's got a, a there's a quote here uh, that shows up in Greek, and it's in transliterated Greek, so I might not be able to pronounce it correctly. Punuma te ta propheticon sabemata kai praskanumen. 
I think that's how it's pronounced. Um, and that's taken from uh, Clement's uh, Apologia, or um, uh, Mar Martyrs, I'm sorry, Justin Martyrs' um, Apologia. Uh, and then we've got the author's uh, um, uh, references there. Continuing, for Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, the Spirit is the wisdom of God who together with the Son was present with God even before the world's creation. So notice uh, Irenaeus, or Irenaeus, I've heard it pronounced both ways, Irenaeus or Irenaeus. Um, he believes that the Spirit is can be uh, separate from God, but can also be understood as the wisdom of God. Um, like I've heard many Unitarians describe the Spirit as the wisdom of God, you know, personified, things like that. The Spirit, moreover, uh, is affirmed by Irenaeus as one of the two hands with which God once created and still recreates mankind. Continuing, from the very beginning, this quote says, the church's logic, I'm sorry, um, let's try that again. From the very beginning, the church's liturgical formulas and doxologies mention the Spirit together with the Father and the Son. So we're talking about some very important issues when um, we deal with the Holy Spirit, even though it gets a little more difficult to separate or to, yeah, to separate the Spirit of God from God himself. And perhaps that's by design. Again, God is the author of Scripture, not me. If it were up to me, I would have been a little bit more systematic in my explanation of who I am and what I want my people to uh, walk away with when it comes to understanding um, God, right? If I were the one who wrote the Bible, but I didn't write the Bible. So God uses progressive revelation, the unfolding of truth upon truth, the um, giving a little bit here and then a little bit more and then a little bit more as he reveals himself down through the pages of history so that it's understandable that when we read through the pages of the Tanakh and the Old Testament, it's understandable why we would get the impression that the Old Testament believers didn't have um, a Trinitarian perspective of God. They might not have really been able to articulate God in three persons. They may not have even had a, a grasp on this idea that God is three persons. But that doesn't mean that God isn't three persons. That that only means that we have information limitation. It means that the information that was given at the time that God revealed his, himself was the amount that he wanted to reveal to his people. It doesn't mean that he himself was not a tripersonal God. It's, and it's not as if God suddenly morphed into a tripersonal God in the New Testament when the time of, for sending his son Jesus into the world came. That's not what happened either. Again, it's simply um, that information gets um, uh, revealed and is uh, known for what it always was, but only in hindsight. That's, that's the essence of biblical mystery. Let's keep reading my own notes here. These are my own thoughts. And so we return to, I'm um, sorry, when we return to an accurate account of the early Christian church and what I'm calling classical Trinitarianism, what we find is that most of the founding fathers affirmed the authority of the scriptural passages, which provided a view of God that supported a Trinitarian perspective rather than a Unitarian one. You understand what I'm trying to say there? The Bible is consistent with a Trinitarian God if we allow for the fact that the progressive revelatory nature of God is demonstrated from one page of the one end of the Bible to the end other end of the Bible, but only as we take it as a whole. If you center your theology 
only a one part of the Bible, which is really the the, um, um, uh, the logic of cherry picking, which is a fallacy, then you're going to short sight yourself. You're going to short sight yourself. You're not going to be getting the whole picture. And it's like describing an accident from only one corner. Let's say there's an accident that takes place on a corner of a building where two streets intersect, like First and Main Street. And you're on First Street and you can only see up and down First Street. You can see Main Street as it's intersecting, but because of the buildings on the left and the right of you, you can only you have only a limited view of Main Street. Uh, whereas First Street, which is running... Um, uh, you know, in front of you, you can see all of that. So you can see a, a part of an accident, but you may not be able to see all of it because part of it's maybe hidden from view by one of the buildings on one side of you. you it's only until you kind of go around the corner and get more of a 360 perspective, you know, um, or zoom up, go up above the accident, right, where you can get an aerial view where you can look down and see the cross section of First and Main Street, and the buildings aren't hiding your view. That you, ah, I can see that the accident actually is strewn along uh, farther out. You know, you can see more detail, et cetera, et cetera. You guys are kind of following along with the analogy that I'm giving. It doesn't take a, a, a rocket scientist to figure this out. So the Bible sometimes is that way. If we only view um, God through the lens of the Old Testament, we're going to get a perspective that closely resembles biblical Judaism, I'm sorry, not biblical Judaism, rabbinic Judaism or Unitarianism or some of these other forms of Christianity that are not as uh, maybe Trinitarian in perspective. All right, so uh, that's really kind of what I'm uh, getting at. I also said in there that um, the founding fathers of the Christian church, when they, um, when the time came to uh, create the creeds and to describe what they believed and to confess and to affirm what they believed, they didn't just use one part of the Bible. They used all of the Bible and took it as authority, and therefore the scriptural passages um, gave them the perspective that we're dealing with a tripersonal God and not just a Unitarian God or a, a monotheistic God or something like that, meaning there is one God, but in his mystery, in his majesty, he reveals himself. He 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 comes to us as Trinity. Um, again, it's it's not easy to understand and grasp, but they did their best to articulate it. Uh, Coleman Ford, I go on to say, writing for the Gospel Coalition, shares these invaluable insights for modern Christians to dwell upon. Let's read this quote from uh, Ford, and then I think this will uh, uh, bring this particular part of our study to a close. Um, and then we'll can, we'll pick this up um, not next week. Just a reminder, we are not meeting next week because of Pentecost, Shavuot. We will pick this up in two weeks after the break. Okay, so here's what, um, sorry about that. Let's try that again. Here's what uh, uh, this particular writer has to say. Quote, evangelicals have much to consider when it comes to Trinitarian reflection in the early church. First, the early church vigorous, vigorously defended the Trinity from Scripture. Understanding the Trinity was not an exercise in what we might call proof texting or philosophical sophistry, but rather deep, Holy Spirit-driven, whole Bible reading. They continue, Their Trinitarian consciousness was woven throughout their writings, right? Speaking of the early church fathers, their worship and their witness. So that's very important. Second, 
It is important for the church to speak correctly about the Trinity. We cannot fully grasp the depth of the mystery that is a triune God, right? That's true. And yet, we should not be flippant with Trinitarian doctrine either. It matters how we understand the roles of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit in our redemption. It also matters that we take Trinitarian doctrine seriously when approaching any ministry effort of the church, right? Um, they, they say whether, or he says, whether that be Sunday morning worship or a middle school Bible study or anything like that. And then last, Trinitarian doctrine sets Christianity apart from any other faith commitment, right? Muslims, Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Unitarians, and other uh, religious groups who, um, who claim to worship God, they don't worship the God proclaimed by the scriptures, the testimony of the apostles, and the witness of the early church. And this is a big sticking point. Let me interject. Those other Christian groups who say that the Bible doesn't teach Trinity, and yet they still want to worship the God of the Bible, how do you think the God of the Bible would feel if they are actually not giving him full credit where he has already revealed himself? It's much like, it could be analogous to, rabbinic Judaism says, well, we, we believe in God, we worship God, but we reject Jesus. Well, Christians understand that this rejection of Jesus is actually an insult to the God that they claim to worship because in so in rejecting Jesus, you're not giving God the authority and credit for bringing his son into the world and into the lives of those religious Jews who actually need to have a relationship with God. They're, they're actually thumbing their nose at God's choice of Messiah. They're actually rejecting God by saying, we reject your Messiah. Well, then let's kind of apply that similarly, not whole. We, we can just carte blanche apply this to the Christian groups that I'm referring to, like such as Unitarians. It's a little bit more nuanced, but there could be some similarities in our discussion about if, in fact, God is Trinity, which I believe he is, and we have ample scripture to demonstrate this, then how does that reflect on their belief in God and their acceptance of a God, but yet in a limited form. Is that really acceptance of God? Is that really a true belief in God by rejecting those parts of that God has already revealed about himself? Well, you know, we could talk about that. But let me finish. This quote goes on to say, unless the God you worship is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then you worship a false God. It's pretty harsh. The early church vigorously fought for the Trinitarian theology in the wake of multiple waves of heresy. And we should continue to contend for it today. And that's uh, really a good place to kind of stop and reflect on this idea of Trinity. Is God important enough in your life that you would consider bringing in aspects of God that you don't fully comprehend or understand, right? Is God... Um, is what what is what does Doctor Tuggy's uh, podcast say? Uh, do you love God enough to think about Him? I I'm I'm really impacted by that um, that tagline uh, his podcast. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Because it's a podcast all about thinking about God. It's a podcast all about 
engaging and encountering God, not just with our emotions, which are good, but to engage God with our intellect, which is also good. God created our intellect, and so let's think about God. And so, in closing tonight, we'll pick this up in two weeks, let's just remind ourselves that God is the one who reveals himself in Scripture. God is the author of Scripture. And so, if God reveals himself a certain way, even if we can't fully comprehend it, we nevertheless would do well to app, uh, we can't apprehend it, but we would do well to affirm it. We would do well to um, um, accept that this is the God we serve. As mysterious as it is, we yield. We yield. We can't fully comprehend. We can't understand you, God. We can't even articulate you. Um, but your words are true, and they're trustable and reliable, and therefore you would never give us something that would harm us. And so we thank you for the revelation that is the Word of God, and we will continue to look there for our understanding of who you are. And that'll do it for Exploring the Shema, Discussions on the Issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the, um, what are we going to look at next? The, uh, the liturgy. Let's turn to the liturgy briefly. As I mentioned, we won't take too long. We're working our way down through uh, Genesis 17 passage. I'm just reading a few verses at a time and bouncing this off of, um, I say Romans 14, but I think this really should be Galatians. Uh, like I mentioned, yeah, let me turn to Galatians. I don't want Romans 14 for my uh, apostolic scripture selection. Give me one second. I should have had Galatians pulled up earlier. Alrighty. So in Galatians 7, I'm sorry, in Genesis 17, uh, God tells Abraham about the covenant known as uh, circumcision. And we read uh, verse 9 and um, 10 last week. So we'll just read the next two verses now. Uh, in verse 11, right here on my screen, like you can see, uh, God says, You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. And then verse 12, he says, He who, I'm sorry, I'll have to read uh, both of them since there's a comma in the English. Verse 12 says, He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money, from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. And then verse 13, both he who is born in your household, in your house, and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. And I may as well read verse 14 since that's the end. Any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So 11 through 14 tonight. And the things that that are um, of significance to me is that this is a covenant that is made with Abraham throughout his generations right there. And it is an everlasting covenant in verse uh, 13. So um, this speaks profoundly to me of the, um, the lasting value of this particular covenant that God made with Abraham. Unless God has gone back on his word and lied to Abraham, God knowing the future from the past, knowing in advance that he's going to cancel this particular covenant when he sends his son into the world and dies on the cross, knowing that he's going to bring Judaism to an end and bring the law to an end and bring circumcision to an end, physical circumcision that is, and, and, and swap it out with, with the heart circumcision or something like that. Um, Unless God was deceiving Abraham, uh, then we should be taking uh, what God said to Abraham at face value. Let's look at the Hebrew real quick, starting over here on the right side of the page. Starting in verse 11, um, uh, Moshe writes, Un, uh, un maltem et basar uh, arlatchem v'haya leot brit beni uveinechem. Verse 12 says, Uvein shmonat yamim yimolachem kol zakar ladorotechem. 
יליד בית מכנת כסף מכל בן נכר, נכר אשר לא מזרחה הוא. Verse 13 says, הימול ימול יליד ביתך מכנת כספך והייתה בריתי בבשרכם לברית עולם. And verse 14 says, וערל זכור אשר לא ימול את בשר ארלתכו ונכרתה הנפש ההיא מיהמיה את בריתי היפר. And that'll do it for the Hebrew section. Bouncing off of what we just read in the book of Galatians about the eternality of the uh, Abrahamic covenant and its sign of physical circumcision, we now are faced with what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 5, which seems to contradict on a surface level about circumcision. Galatians chapter 5, we read 1 and 2 and 3 last week. Um, uh, and he, it, where he talks about that uh, circ- circumcision will be of no advantage to you. So he seems to be downplaying circumcision in verse 2. Uh, let's pick up the reading in verse 4. I'll read 4, 5, and uh, uh, 6 tonight. Uh, verse 4 says, you, were, you are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You've fallen away from grace. Um, verse 5 says, Through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And verse 6 says, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Right? So is Paul downplaying physical circumcision? Is he saying that it's of no value? Is he um, uprooting it, saying that we don't need to do it anymore, and that if you try to become circumcision, that you're falling away from grace, if you're trying to be justified by being circumcision, um, things like that. Uh, we could talk about this passage at a different time. I don't want to get into it for my liturgy. And I do go into this at length in my Romans, I'm sorry, my Galatians commentary. So you can catch those resources there on my website at tatesaytor.com. My exegene Galatians commentary is recommended. Let's read the Greek uh, real quick of 4, 5, and 6 over on uh, this side of the page. Uh, the Greek says, Kater gethta apokristu hoitinis in namo dekaius the teis Charitas ex apesate. Verse 5 says, Hemes gar penumati ek pistios elpida de caiosunes apec decametha. And verse 6 says, In gar Christo Yisu ute peratame ti eskue ute acrobustia ala pistis diagapes in ergumene. And that'll do it for the liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the short little video for tonight. And after the video, we'll dismiss in prayer. Okay? You guys ready? Here we go. Short Questions, Short Answers by Torah Teacher Ariel and eBible. Copyright, Tetsay Torah Ministries 2015. All rights reserved. Here's our question. Do Christians have to obey the Old Testament law? With a clarifying statement being the Old Testament law here referring to all the laws and commandments given to Israel in the Old Testament, not just the Ten Commandments. The short answer is yes. Christians should be obeying the Old Testament law, although I would take issue with calling it Old Testament in the first place, preferring instead to call it Torah, God's teaching. To be sure, 
didn't Paul and the rest of the New Testament, quote-unquote, Jewish followers of Yeshua Jesus, continue to obey Torah post-resurrection? But, you might say, that was first century. However, in the 21st century, much of the Torah cannot be kept because we have no functioning temple, no priests, no animal sacrifices, and no theocracy ruling over the land of Israel. What is more, keeping the Torah in the land of Israel has to be modified when one dwells outside the land, even if there was a standing temple. It is my understanding that the errors surrounding one's relationship to Torah can be corrected once a person resolves the issues surrounding identity and legalism, begins to understand the intended nature and function of the Torah in the first place, and then faithfully applies it to their own lives. Because the Messiah has already come, the Torah is now a document meant to be lived out in the life of a faithful follower of Yeshua through the power of the Ruach HaKodesh, the Holy Spirit, to the glory of Hashem, God the Father. It should not be presumed that it could be obeyed mechanically, automatically, legalistically, without having faith, without having trust in Hashem, without having love for Hashem or man, and without being empowered by the Ruach HaKodesh. To state it succinctly, Torah observance is a matter of the heart, always has been and always will be. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. And that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. Lord, I'm thankful for the uh, seasons and the times that are marked out on your holy calendar, on your special times that you've promised to meet with us. Here we are now. We've arrived at Pentecost. We've arrived at Shavuot, the celebration of the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But also, if the rabbi's time reckoning is correct, it's also the recognition and celebration of the giving of the Torah of Mount Sinai. And as I mentioned in my earlier prayer, Lord, it forms a convenient truth uh, of two, uh, in two aspects. These two truths, these twin truths, this, this binary aspect of, of, of who you are and what you're trying to convey to us uh, comes to the forefront. 
The Word of God is the objective standard that we must have in our life if we are to be pleasing to you, if we are to be ambassadors for your kingdom, if we are to make an impact in the world around us for holiness. We've got to have your words hidden deep down inside of us, indeed written on our very hearts and on our minds. We've got to walk them out in our lives and implement them. Uh, They are the blueprint for our living, right? The Word of God. And at the same time, we need the Spirit of God to empower us to lead lives and to live lives that uh, turn from sin and turn unto the holy, uh, turn unto uh, the holiness that you are outlining for us in the pages of your Word. We need the Holy Spirit to remind us of the words of the Master. We need the Holy Spirit to uh, convict us of sin. We need the Holy Spirit so that we can fellowship with one another and love one another the proper way that we should. We need the Holy Spirit to intercede for us when we don't know how to approach you. And so, Lord, the, the, the twin truths, the binary aspects that I'm um, highlighting in my closing prayer here are that the Word of God is that objective standard that is necessary for us to, to, um, uh, uh, to uh, lead us and to guide us. And at the same time, the Holy Spirit is necessary to help us to walk into the words. We can't have one without the other. If we just try to embrace the words of God without the Spirit of God, legalism will be the result. And at the same time, if we try to embrace the Spirit of God without the objective Word of God, then um, all manner of gross lawlessness might be the result, although it would look very spiritual, right, esoteric, but uh, it would be subjective. There would be no objective truth. It would just be um, what I think God's Spirit says versus what you think God's Spirit says. And so we need the Spirit of God and we need the Word of God. Help us to have them in harmony and in equal balance in our lives. And only in doing so we will we live lives that are pleasing to you and in fellowship with one another. Thank you for these times. Uh, keep us safe during the break. Um, bring us back together in two weeks and we'll be careful to give you the praise and glory of Yeshua. Amen.